Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. All right, let's stand together uh, as we read the Word of the Lord this morning. So I'm reading from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not laying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Easter. What a wonderful day this is. And man, the Lord even gave us a, a beautiful day outside as well to, to match the, the glory of this day. So man, praise be to God. Uh, but as, uh, as I'm sure you guys can imagine, we're going to be taking a, uh, another pause from our normally scheduled programming in Colossians uh, for obvious reasons. It's Easter. So uh, <clears throat> now, I went back and forth on what uh, precise direction I should go in for this morning. On the one hand, I considered actually focusing on, on the veracity, on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, to the, to the volumes of historical data that point to its reality, that points to the reality of the resurrection being a true historical fact. I also considered preaching on Jesus uh, appearing to the disciples in the upper room, or even maybe Jesus uh, revealing himself to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And, uh, but ultimately, I felt the Lord leading me to focus in on the account of the resurrection of Jesus that is found in the Gospel of John chapter 20, to the very first witnesses of the empty tomb. And my hope is that in this account, we're, we're able to see a couple different things. Uh, the first is what true devotion to Jesus looks like. That's the first thing I want us to see, what true devotion to Jesus actually looks like. Because there are many in this world who claim to be devotees of Jesus, right? But in reality, are, are, are kind of more like fans from, from a distance. That's, that's kind of more of them. Do you know, do you know what I mean? For example, when I'm at a hockey game, I, I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm, I'm in it. I'm a big fan. I'm completely on board. But if you were to look at my everyday habits, if you were to look at the way that I spend my time, uh, my, if you were to look at my thoughts 
outside of that one particular hockey game that I would have gone to, you would have no idea I had any love for the game whatsoever. And Justin would be very ashamed of me. Likewise, there are those who are fans of Jesus. They like to come to church on days like this, on, on Easter or Christmas, and when they're here, they, they're all on board and, and may even nod and, and agree with the sermon and say amen, maybe. But when it comes to the rest of their lives, you wouldn't really have any reason to believe they're actually devoted to Jesus. And so one of the things that we will look at this morning is what a true disciple of Jesus looks like. Not someone who is simply this, this part-time fan, but someone who actually loves and adores him and sees him as the most valuable thing in her life. Secondly, I want us to see that the resurrection is not simply a historical fact to be agreed upon, but an event that is to be awakened to and experienced. And lastly, why the resurrection is truly so important. What the big deal about the resurrection actually is. We must see that within the truth of the resurrection lies the very security of our salvation. So those are just some of the things that I want us to be able to try to try to glean from our passage this morning. But first, as always, let us pray. Lord, we humbly enter into your wonderful presence this morning. And Lord, we ask that your spirit illumines our hearts and minds to your word. You know, that when we, when we look at the pages of this scripture, the words leap off of it and into our hearts as we study together the account of the resurrection of your beloved Son. Amen. All right. Now, before we dive into our passage, we must remember what the atmosphere is like here in John 20. And if you flip back, actually, one chapter to John 19, you will see the brutal and excruciating death of Jesus on the cross. And now all of Jesus' disciples and followers who had not betrayed him and joined the mob that had crucified him did not have the privilege of hindsight like, like we do, right? They didn't have the gospel of, of John or, or Matthew or Luke or Mark that would have told them the rest of the story as, as they watch or as they hear of Jesus' excruciating crucifixion. All they had and all they knew was the fact that their Messiah, the one who they believed came to save them, had just been murdered. And not just, not just murdered, but he was murdered by being nailed to a cross. And so their, their hearts at this time were like, were like that of a, a chaotic ocean with waves of confusion and, and fear and hurt and sorrow crashing all around inside of them. And so not knowing if they would be arrested or, or even crucified themselves for their association with Jesus, his closest 11 disciples go into hiding. They're afraid. So they lay low. So this was an extraordinarily grim time for all who knew and loved Jesus. This was, this was their best friend. This was their Messiah. And he was gone. 
He was dead. And they didn't know what to do. We also know that after Jesus breathed his last on the cross, a man named Joseph of Arimathea placed Jesus in his, in his own tomb, and Nicodemus came to help bind Jesus' body in the burial linens and uh, brought spices and myrrh and aloes to put on Jesus' body, which was the typical custom of the day. And then over the entrance to this tomb, a massive stone was rolled into place, sealing completely Jesus inside this tomb. But that's the atmosphere. That was, that was the atmosphere. That was the mood going into chapter 20. Fear, sorrow, and Jesus' disciples hiding. But as we look to verse 1 of our passage this morning, we will see that not everyone was hiding. Not all of Jesus' disciples were hiding. Look at chapter, or verse 1, rather, of chapter 20 of John. It says, Now on the first day of the week, meaning Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Now I want us to actually just pause here for a moment, because I think when we, when we read this, we can make the mistake of just kind of breezing by it. And that's typically what, what I would do when reading this passage. I would just kind of shoot right past this, this really brief phrase. But I have to thank pastor and theologian Dr. Stephen Lawson for making the point that we really need to stop here for a moment and look at Mary Magdalene, to really, to really look at this, this woman. And the reason is because Mary, she, she was a remarkable lady. She was an incredible woman. She was a woman who deeply, deeply loved Jesus. You see her love for Jesus even just days before when she was one of the very few of Jesus' loved ones who stood at the foot of the cross watching the horror as he died. She didn't leave his side for a moment. And on early Sunday morning, before the rest of the world began to stir, while it was still dark outside, as verse 1 says, Mary was ready. She was ready. Mary was spring-loaded, as Stephen Lawson puts it, and she launches out of bed so that she could go and minister just to the body of Jesus. Now, I don't want you to miss the devotion here, the devotion she had to Jesus. Mary had a devotion to Jesus that did not allow her to sit still. She couldn't sit still. And you see this in Mary's life even before the cross. The love that Mary had uh, to Jesus moved her. It caused her to want to serve Jesus in whatever way that she possibly could. If you flip to Luke 8, you'll find that Mary among, or was among those women who actually helped fund Jesus and the disciples' ministry. Did you know that? Have you ever wondered how it was that they were able to do so much traveling, specifically to, to teach and to heal and for Jesus to, to heal and do these miracles? Have you ever thought about how they were able to do that? Well, it was in large part due to these faithful women, which included Mary Magdalene, who were providing for them out of their means, the Scripture says. 
I mean, Mary was absolutely sold out for Jesus. He was the rhythm of her heart. And her whole life was given to serve him. So much so that even in his death, Mary was unable to sit still. And she shot out of her home like lightning on that Sunday morning. So she could bring spices to the tomb to minister to Christ's body, as Luke's account tells us. Her devotion to Jesus was an energetic and living devotion. What makes her love and devotion here in John 20 even more awe-inspiring is when you realize that there's a very real possibility that she could have been identified as one of those who was with Jesus, who was even helping Jesus and enabling Him in His ministry. And Rome had imprisoned people for much less than that. But that mattered little to this disciple. And so friends, if you are a believer here this morning, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, Mary Magdalene, exemplifies the life of faith that we should desire to live ourselves. So often, our own Christian walk can can look more like a crawl, can it not? Our devotion to Jesus can become lethargic and, and lazy. And the only time that we are actually committed to serving Jesus is on Sunday mornings, maybe. Or who knows, on, on Christmas and or Easter. We allow the comforts in our lives or the situations that arise, whether whether good or bad, to water down our love for Jesus, our devotion to Him. And we become sluggish in our faith. But oh, that wasn't Mary. That was not Mary. She did not even allow the most tragic event in her life, watching Jesus suffer and die, to stop her from living for Him. And friends, I believe another reason why we can wane so much in our devotion to Jesus is because we often forget the very thing that energized Mary's love for Jesus and shot her out of bed that morning. You see, before she met Jesus, Mary was a dreadful sinner. She was a dreadful sinner. And not only that, but Mary was even at one point the home to not one, Not two, but seven demons. So if you wanted to meet someone who was lost in the darkness, who was a a lover of the darkness, who was lost in sin and following after the prince of this world, as Paul calls Satan in the book of Ephesians, you would need only to look at Mary. Mary Magdalene. That is, until she encountered Jesus. And then everything changed. When she encountered Jesus, she experienced not just freedom from the demons that inhabited her, but she experienced a cleansing, a washing away of her sins. Mary experienced a freedom unlike she had felt before as she went from being helplessly trapped in the grime and muck of her sin to being cleansed, to being forgiven by the Savior of her soul. And that is the experience with Jesus that drove Mary's devotion and love for Him. 
It wasn't because she thought that in serving Jesus, she could somehow atone or make up for her sins herself, as if she could do that. But it was because she knew that in Jesus, her sins were forgiven and that she had been made clean in Jesus. Jesus, while remaining sinless himself, climbed into the muck and mire of this sinful world and saved Mary and gave her the clean garments of his own sinless life. And so in utter gratitude, Mary determined for her to live her life completely in service of the Lord. Out of gratitude, out of thanksgiving. So brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, Let us this Easter morning remember what it is that we've been saved from. Have you forgotten? Have any of you forgotten what it is that you have been saved from? And so so the joy and the love and devotion of Christ has been, been kind of drained out of you bit by bit? We were pulled out of the quagmire of our sin and all of the filth and grime that stained our very hearts because of it has been completely and totally washed away in the blood of Christ. On the cross, Christ bought our freedom from sin and death and through faith gave us the right to be called the beloved children of the Lord Most High. Man, that's what, that's what happened to Mary Magdalene. That's what, that's what happened to us. And so let that motivate us to be like Mary. Let us stop with our lazy faith and be energized by the truth of our salvation. And to seek, like Mary, to get out of our beds in the morning, seeking to live the day devoted to Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning, or somehow maybe listening to this sermon online, and you believe yourself to be too bad, or or too far gone for cleansing, if you believe your sins are, are too great to be forgiven, well, friends, yet again, look at the life of Mary Magdalene and rejoice. Whatever sins you've committed, whatever darkness lies in your heart, no matter how lost you may feel, the grace of God is magnificent enough to cover it all. Through faith in Christ, you can be cleansed. You can be redeemed. You can be made new. You come to Him dirty. You don't don't come to Him trying to clean yourself first. You come to Him dirty, and He makes you clean. That was the truth that Mary Magdalene knew. And friends, those with the greatest sins often become the greatest disciples. The Puritan John Bunyan actually wrestled with thoughts that he was too far sinful to ever be forgiven, to ever have Jesus give him even a second glance. Now, you may be actually surprised Uh, at hearing that, because if you do happen to know John Bunyan, you probably know him primarily from his famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress. But what you most likely don't know about Bunyan was that he was not always the godly man he is remembered as being today. He He was crude. He was a drunkard. He was a public nuisance, and the list goes on. 
And he thought that he was too far gone for Christ to ever love him, to ever, ever even bother with him. And he wrote of this torment that he felt in his heart, saying, I had been a great and grievous sinner, and I thought it was now too late for me to look up to heaven. For Christ would not forgive me, nor pardon my transgressions. I felt my heart sink in despair, concluding it was too late to be saved. And therefore, I resolved in my mind, I would just go on and sin. For I thought my state is surely miserable no matter what I do. Miserable if I leave my sins, and miserable if I follow them. I am surely damned, and if I must be so, I might as well be damned, damned for many sins as be damned for few. And so Bunyan, thinking for sure he was unforgivable, figured if he was going to hell, he might as well go committing as many sins as he possibly could on his journey there. But again, that was before the gospel of Christ burst into his heart like this shining sun with, with its warmth and its glory of what Bunyan desperately longed for but thought was lost to him. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. In his book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, I essentially served as his autobiography. Bun, Bunyan uh, told of this internal struggle that happened within his heart in a story about two men kind of having a conversation. One man was like Bunyan's old self. He believed that he was too bad to be saved, and even, even had Satan whispering those lies into his ear as well. The second man was like Bunyan's new self in Christ. And as the first man was telling the second of his struggles, the second man, the, the new man in Christ, said, oh yes, I had that very conversation with Satan. I've been there. He hates to lose a sinner. He said to me, what, my true servant? My old servant, will you forsake me now? Having so often sold yourself to me to work wickedness, will you forsake me now, you horrible wretch? Do you not know that you have sinned yourself beyond the reach of grace? And do you think to find mercy now? Are you not a murderer, a thief, a harlot, a witch, a sinner of the greatest size? And do you look for mercy now? Do you think that Christ will foul his fingers with you? It is enough to make angels blush, said Satan, to see so vile a one knock at heaven's gates for mercy. And will you be so terribly bold to do it? This is how Satan dealt with me, said the second man, when at first I came to Christ. And what did you do? replied the first man. Why, I granted the whole charge to be true. Weren't expecting that, were you? said the second man. And what, did you despair? said the first no, said the second man, the new man in Christ. I said, I am the Mary Magdalene. I am the Zacchaeus. I am the thief on the cross. I am the harlot. I am the drunkard. I am the prodigal and the one of Christ's murderers. Yes, I am worse than any of these. And yet, God. And yet, God was so far away from rejecting me as I found afterwards that in fact there was music 
and dancing in his house for me. And there was joy that I had come home. And that is the reality that Mary Magdalene found to be true. Though her sin was great, the grace of Jesus abounded even more. And the same held true for me. And I mean, if you're an unbeliever in this room that feels that way, the same can hold true for you as well. So what an incredible woman of faith Mary is. And I want to I be like her in my love and devotion to Jesus. I want my faith to be such that I can't sit still. That I must serve Jesus with everything that I have out of sheer adoration and gratitude for loving a sinner like me. Now, as Mary wakes up early to go to minister to the body of Christ, when she arrives at the tomb, she sees something that she did not expect. The stone had already been, been taken away from the tomb. So in verse 2, the, the energetic Mary, she doesn't miss a beat and she doesn't, she doesn't walk, but she just bolts to go tell the disciples, specifically Peter and the one who Jesus loved, which all biblical scholars typically agree is John, the author of this gospel. She sprints to where they are hiding and tells them in verse 2, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now Mary, when she says they, is most likely referring to rave robbers. It is not uncommon, or was not uncommon rather, for the tombs to be raided by men who are seeking to steal trinkets that may have been buried with the bodies. And so Mary is probably thinking that a group of grave robbers had, had broken into the tomb and stolen the body of Jesus for some reason or another. You also see that she said, we do not know where they have laid him. We see in the other gospel accounts that Mary was joined at the tomb with other women, though she was the first to arrive. Now when Peter and John heard this news, they were understandably alarmed. And so they risk exposure to run as fast as they possibly can to the tomb. And in verse 4, whether it be because he would just happen to be more athletic or whatever the reason may be, we are told that the other disciple, again, this most likely refers to John, outran Peter and arrived at the tomb first. Now, I want to just have a quick aside. I'm not going to really spend much time here. I'm not going to linger here for any, any real length of time. But I want you to notice the humility of John here in this passage and actually in the entire gospel of John. He desperately desired to not have his name shine forth on the pages of his gospel. Now, some people joke and say that he is actually showing a lot of arrogance by calling himself, you know, the one that Jesus loved. You know, wink, wink. That is actually not the case in the slightest. He called himself that most likely because that was the testimony of Jesus himself. But John, all throughout this gospel, completely omits his name. Because the one he sought to glorify was not himself. It was Jesus. Now contrast that humility with the insatiable desire for attention that we see in our modern, modern culture today. A different John, John the Baptist, said it well when he said, 
that may I decrease so that he, Jesus, may increase. I, I must decrease, John says. We can learn a great deal of humility from men like these who believe that, that being known, that, that, being, that being seen, that being thought much of as something not to be pursued, but to be rejected for the sake of the magnification of the name of Jesus Christ. All right, I'm going to slide that soapbox back under the table for another sermon for another time. So as John arrives on the scene first in verse 5, he bends down and looks from the outside into the tomb. And where he should have seen the body of Jesus, he only sees these, these linen cloths. Peter then arrives at the tomb, and he doesn't hang outside like John, but he goes in. And in verse 7, Peter sees the, the face cloth that would have been placed over the face of Jesus, kind of lying neatly folded by itself. Now, Peter was no doubt thinking that this was something strange. You wouldn't imagine a, a grave robber taking the time to completely unwrap the body of Jesus and to kind of neatly fold his, his face wrapping and just kind of you know, lay it over on the side. It doesn't really seem like a typical, I don't know many grave robbers, but I imagine that's not probably what they would do. So something strange was obviously going on. Now, I want to point out something interesting in the words used in verses 5 through 7, specifically with the word saw. The word saw. Verse 5, John saw the linen clothes lying there, or cloths lying there. Verse 6, Peter saw the linen cloths and the face cloth. Now what I want to point out is that in Greek, these two are actually different words. In verse 5, the Greek word is blepo. Blepo, and another little interesting fact about the word blepo uh, is in Greek, it's actually one of the more fun words to say. <laughs> Blepo. And it literally means to, to see, right? To, to see with the eyes. John looked in and saw. Now in verse 6, the word for saw is different. It is the word theorio. Theorio, which is where we get what English word, do you think? Theorio. Theory. Where we get the word theory. And it means to theorize, just theorize. And so Peter went into the tomb and didn't just see the funeral garb of Jesus, uh, but as he saw them lying there, his, his, his mind began to race. He began to think, he began to theorize what could have possibly happened to Jesus. Was it, was it grave robbers? Was it the Roman or Jewish authorities who, who stole the body from Jesus or stole the body of Jesus? He was trying as hard as he could to try to piece together everything that was happening and come up with, with an explanation. But then, in verse 8, the other disciple, John, finally enters into the tomb. And we are told that he saw and believed. He saw and believed. Now the word for saw here is the Greek word idon. Idon. And this means to be awakened to, or to come to an understanding of. And so when John came into the tomb, and as he saw the linens, and he saw the face cloth folded up, it finally dawned on him. He was finally awakened to what was truly happening in that moment. 
that what Jesus had been teaching them about, what he, what he had been teaching them about when he, when he said things like the temple would be destroyed and rebuilt in three days, about his death and everything that would surround it, was at last, by the grace of God, brought into new light in his mind and in his heart. And as verse 9 says, up to this point, none of the disciples understood what Scripture had been pointing to for centuries. In passages like Isaiah 53 or Jonah 1.17 or Psalm 16, that Jesus must not just die, but He also must rise from the dead. But now, now John saw it. And not only did he see it, but he believed in it. He believed that Christ died on the cross on that first Easter Sunday. And that the, the tomb was not empty because of grave robbers or because the authorities took the body or, or his other disciples tried to, tried to hide the body, as some have theorized. But the tomb sat empty because it was not powerful enough to stop Jesus our King. John knew and believed that Jesus lived. But, why? Why is the bodily resurrection of Jesus so important? Why does the Christian faith hang or hinge on that historical truth? Why did Jesus have to rise, as verse 9 states? Well, first we must realize what the cross accomplished first. You see, on the cross, Jesus died for our justification. I know that's a fancy word, but let me, let me unpack it. Meaning that he bled and died on the cross for our punishment. That was due to us for our sins. The wrath of the Father was poured out on Jesus on the cross for our sake. And Jesus' blood was the price that had to be paid so that through faith in him, we could be forgiven of our sins. On the cross, Jesus bore all of our sins, past, present, and future. And by faith, His righteousness, His moral perfection, His perfect life is draped over us as if it were our very own. So that when we stand before the throne of God, He doesn't, he doesn't see the muck and the grime of our sins. He sees the perfect life of His Son. And He sees His beloved child. Not only that, but now you have an inheritance. The cross gave you an inheritance. If you place your faith in Him, it gave you an inheritance of a new life and an eternal life. That is justification. That, in, in a small package, in a nutshell, is justification. That is what happened for us on the cross. We've been justified in the courtroom of God and now stand innocent because the innocent Lamb of God was slain on our behalf. But where the cross accomplished justification, the resurrection was the validation. The resurrection was the blinding neon sign that pointed to the Father accepting the payment presented to Him by Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of His people. It was validation that Jesus truly is the living water. That He is our bread from heaven. That He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
That He is the Alpha and Omega, the true second person of the Godhead in whom, in the words of our Savior in John 10.10, is life and life abundant. The resurrection proves that He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. What is more is that Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23 says, this is a lot, but hang with me here. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, meaning that death came into the world as a consequence of the sin of Adam, and in Adam, or sorry, since Adam was a representative of all humanity, all of us, all of us are guilty of that sin. We are all fallen in sinfulness and deserving of the consequences of that sin, which is death. So by a man came death. But by another man, meaning the God-man Jesus, the new Adam, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all who believe in His name shall be made alive but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now, now that, that's a lot, so let me explain this just a little bit. The term firstfruits that you see come up uh, several times in this passage here is agricultural language. You would know what sort of harvest you are going to get by literally looking at the first fruits, the first fruits that would, that would spring up from the ground or from the tree. And they would indicate what the rest of the crop was going to be like. So do you, do you see the connection that Paul is making here? Not only is the resurrection the validation of what Christ accomplished on our behalf on the cross, but friends, the resurrection of Jesus is a glimpse of the resurrection that all believers will experience. Yes, if you believe in Jesus, you experience a spiritual resurrection. Your dead heart brought to life by the power of the gospel. But Jesus is so loving and so merciful that upon our death, the removal of, of the soul, the heart from the body, He is so merciful that that is not a permanent situation for us. Upon the second coming of Christ, we too will receive bodies like unto Christ's body. It will be a glorified body that will fit our glorified hearts. Our hearts and bodies on that glorious day will be completely free from the corruption of sin. Completely. All of the taint that sin had left on us, both body and soul, will be completely washed away. Friends, because of the truthfulness of the resurrection of Christ, the sting of death is gone. It's been removed. And so what, what a glorious day this is. What a glorious day is Easter. What a privilege we have to be able to come together like this and just glorify God for the resurrection and the hope that it points us to. But brothers and sisters, as I come to a close, I urge you to not allow the truth of the resurrection to be something that you come to adore only once a year. 
The power of the resurrection, Philippians 3.10 calls it, is to be something that we experience throughout all of our lives, day in and day out. What motivates us and gives us the power to share the gospel with those who don't believe, to give glory to Jesus even in the midst of our pain and suffering, to meet together as a church, to have a, a burning in your bones, to be devoted to Jesus in a Mary Magdalene-like way is that we do not serve or follow some religious figure that is dead and gone. But it is that we serve and worship a living King who has overcome the grave. That He has waiting for us a great and eternally valuable inheritance. If you are not a Christian listening this morning, friends, there is no other name under heaven which can save you. Not even your own. So, so I beg you, look, look to the cross. Look to the empty tomb. And my prayer this morning for you is that like John, you are awakened to the truth of it all and believe. And know that Christ's grace, His mercy, His forgiveness is sufficient for you. Let's pray. Lord, what a magnificent God it is that we serve. Lord, you have shown us grace upon grace. And Lord, how wonderful is it that we have a God. We have a King. Who didn't see it right to leave his subjects in the mire of their sinfulness. Or that, that you didn't see it pleasing to you to just evaporate us or, or to disintegrate us rather as soon as we rebelled and sinned against you. But rather, Lord, even though we are your enemies or we were your enemies, as, your, as Paul says in the book of Romans, Lord, you sent your son to save us, to make us clean, to forgive us and to adopt us into your holy and loving family. Lord, we thank you so much for the resurrection. We thank you that it is the validation that you accepted your son's sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. Because of the resurrection, we know that we have a living hope. So Lord, we love you. Lord, help us love you more. Help us love you better. Help us serve you more. Help us be like Mary Magdalene and be so devoted to you that we can't sit still. Pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.